Okay, good morning everyone. We're going to uh, dedicate our learning this morning in the schus and the merit of our dear friend Mayor Hillel ben Rezel Esther. Please God, we should hear only good news in Yeshua's v'nechamos, hopefully, b'karov soon. We pray. Okay, we're still in the middle of this uh, piece by Rupinkus, and uh, we're on page 5. We're going to pick it up from page 5. But just to give a little background, a reminder of where we're at and how we got here. Um, Rapinkus has been developing the notion that sometimes you have to go back to basics. Miriam, come on in. There's a chair right, the chair right over here. Sometimes you have to go back to basics. And that we get confused in this world of so many different ideas, so many different temptations, a world that is uh, cloaking us in a cloud and often darkness and distracting us and confusing us, that sometimes the answer is to go back to basics. What we call emunapshuta, basic belief. And to ask ourselves the simple questions. Last week I told you the story of uh, my class trip in 11th grade to Boston and how that transformed my life. And, um, and, and I was forced to confront a group of friends who said to me, you're a hypocrite, you're criticizing what we're doing, you also pick and choose. You're a typical non-Orthodox, you're picking and choosing in your own way. So who are you to criticize what we're picking and choosing? You're also picking and choosing. And they said to me, is it real or not real? Are you taking it seriously or not? If you think that you're like the rabbi in the group, probably didn't say that but if you think because no one ever thought in a million years I was going to do that but if you think that you're in the position to criticize uh, well we're picking and choosing so you know what about you are you taking it seriously or not and I went back and that you know it's it's a real blessing to be able to pinpoint a moment in your life that changed your life a moment in life that set you on a different trajectory than the one that you might have been on and I feel very blessed for that Um, I'm not blessed that my classmates were eating Burger King on the bus back from Boston but I guess in a way that benefited me so and that was Hashem's uh, master plan. But it forced me to confront something that every year during this month, during Nisan, and in anticipation of Pesach, we are supposed to confront and ask about ourselves. Is it real or is it not real? Does God exist or does He not exist? Is the compelling evidence in favor of God's existence or not? We spoke about last week, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a believer. And if God does exist, what are His expectations of me? How did He design the world? What does he expect from me? What are my responsibilities and duties and obligations to his world? Either I'm taking it seriously or not. And I want to clarify. I'm not suggesting an all-or-nothing approach that you need to be the most righteous person, the most scrupulous, vigilant person, the most halachic person. We don't believe in an all-or-nothing approach. We believe that better to be doing what one is doing than doing nothing. Whatever level one's comfortable with, one is on a journey. And that's okay. So I'm not suggesting an all-or-nothing approach. What I am suggesting is that we be intellectually honest and truthful to ourselves, is it real or is it not real? So Pesach, which celebrates the holiday of coming out of Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt, of forging our unique national identity, because we did not come, we were not saved from Egypt in order to just be some other secular country. We were not saved from Egypt in order to be Switzerland or Sweden. We were saved from Egypt to be the Jewish people, to be Israel. You know, and it's, it, the contrast is remarkable in the Middle East. We were saved from the dark Middle East that's providing so little to the world and, and creating so much destruction for the world to be the Israel that is the light onto nations. We were designed to be that country Israel and the people Israel who whenever there's a natural catastrophe, whenever there's a crisis somewhere in the world, Israel's the first one there with their mobile hospital. We were meant to invent medicines and cure diseases and create technologies and that's who we were meant to be. And, and so what does it mean to do that? 
To be a Jew is more than bagels and locks, you can fish, and it's even more than the startup nation who disproportionately is represented on the NASDAQ with startup, uh, with startup tech companies. It's more than that. Why does it matter that we as a people are disproportionately, why is that part of our mandate and mission, and who are we, and what are we to teach the world? So with Nissan and with Pesach comes that asking ourselves and reflecting collectively, and we're going to do that this Shabbos. I'm very excited. I got great stuff for the Shabbos of God Russia. Got great material. It's not my own, so that's why it's easy for me to say it's great stuff. But it's uh, it's great stuff. So uh, we're going to talk about there's an amazing book called Essentialism, which has changed or I hope is changing my life. Um, it's a great book. It's not a Jewish book. Essentialism. Oh, essentialism. It's uh, it's not a Jewish book. I, I can't tell you how highly I recommend it. And we're going to take a lot of the principles of that book and apply them to Jewish living through studying the mitzvah of B'dikas Chametz. What are we looking for? B'dikas Chametz is a joke. By the time you get to next Thursday night. Hopefully, your house is spotless and clean. You haven't let a kid walk around with a donut since uh, since Sukkot, telling them it's almost Pesach. So, uh, so by the time, so even if you listen, even if you listen to my workshop, which says that you can clean and kosher in half a day, which I believe that you can, which I believe absolutely that you can. The difference between spring cleaning, yeah, Yechavad hasn't even started yet. The difference between Pesach cleaning and spring cleaning. But even if you if you agree with me, you can do it in half a day. By next Thursday night, Mekian, something Mekian. So if you Google essentialism, he's the only one with a book called Essentialism. Don't worry. So by next Thursday night, the house is spotless. So who are we fooling that we're doing a Bedikas Chomet? You're searching for Chomet. It's ridiculous. You're searching a spotless, sterile house. You could do surgery on the floor of your kitchen next uh, Thursday night, and we're doing Bedikas Chomet. So what are we really looking for? And, and what we're going to discuss, what we're really looking for after we develop and analyze the halacha, is what we're really looking for is how to live the essentialist lifestyle, how to live the core value lifestyle, how to get rid of the noise and extract the things in our life that are inessential, that are, that are, that are taking away and compromising the life that we are meant to live. And that's all part of the springtime and Pesach and getting back to our roots, getting back to that notion of emunah. Okay, so we're on the bottom of page five. Yeah, I could repeat the whole class from last week or you could just listen to it online. Ulam yeshna hasaga nosefes. There's another idea, says Rapinkas. Nala yoser. Mochen de godless. Shashem yisparachu echad. There's another idea which is even more which is even more profound, even deeper, even greater. And that's the concept of mochen de godless. Shashem yisparach, that God who echad, he is one. Lahakir ba'amitas ha-metzias mitoch ha to realize that everything sings the praise of God. Every leaf, every blade of grass, every moment, every experience, every song on the radio, every conversation, that you can see Hashem in everything. Hashem Echad, everything that exists is an extension of the Almighty. Now, I will interject, which he doesn't, that we don't always appreciate it. You know, community is going through a crisis with someone that you love, it's hard to see Hashem. You go through a personal illness, you go through a personal sense of, of profound disappointment, hurt, angst, worry. It's hard to see Hashem. But that too is Hashem Echad. I'll tell you an amazing insight that uh, Rav Asher Weiss, who was our guest earlier this year, the great Menchus Asher, quoted from his Rebbe, the Sanza Rav. And uh, he said the following, that in Shema, we say Shema Yisrael, listen, Jewish people, who are we talking to? You're supposed to say Shema out loud that you can hear it even if you're home alone. So who are you talking to? So the Yisrael is yourself. Yisrael takes back the explanatory days. The Yisrael, I, I said this uh, 15 years ago at the explanatory service. So the Yisrael that we're talking to is the Jew in us, the Pintaliyid in us. Shema, we're saying, wake up. You're asleep. You're asleep at the wheel. 
You're a zombie. You're just going through life. Wake up. Shema Yisrael. The Pintaliyid, the Jew in you, you know, wake up. There's a God. You're a holy soul. You're a spark. You could be alive. Stop sleepwalking through life. And know, Shema Yisrael, know that Hashem Elokeinu, now Hashem, the Yudke Vavke, that name for Hashem that we pronounce Adonai, stands for Adnus, God's mastery over the whole world. Yudke Vavke. And then you have Elokim, Hashem Elokeinu. Elokeinu, Elokim is Midas Adin. That's the name that we use for God. And we're talking about God as a judge. We're talking about God as the master of justice, who exact justice. He looks at us and gives us exactly what we deserve, justice. So the name Yudke Vavke, Adnus, that we pronounce Al-Tad Yud, is Midas HaChesed. That's God's attribute of kindness. You know, that means that parents, just like, think about parents. Sometimes you're in, you're in a certain mood, or for whatever reason you're predisposed to overlook a certain thing your child did, and you're overflowing with Midas HaChesed. That you ignore the mistake they made, or you let it slide, or you don't, you let them off the punishment, you're kind. Other times children encounter our Midas HaDin. One of my children encountered my Midas HaDin this morning, <laughs> significantly. I realized that when my throat was hurting earlier, giving the class because... Anyway, so sometimes children... She deserved it. So sometimes our children encounter the Midas HaDin. Because as a loving parent, you have to know kind of the yin and yang of, of Midas HaRacham and Midas HaDin. When, when, when does the child need the love and the nurture and the compassion and the flexibility? And when do they need a little bit of uh, tough love? When do they need a little bit of Midas HaDin? So God, towards us, as our parent... And God, you know, in my case, it could be I had too little sleep, it could be I'm stressed out, it could be a million factors, you know, Yechavit served me the wrong dinner last night, it could be a million, she didn't, she didn't, she, she didn't, I said, it could be in theory, I ate the wrong food in the vending machine at one in the morning at shul, it could be a lot of different, pretty accurate, so it could be a lot of different factors that make the parent express midas adin when they should have racha, when they should express justice, when they should have compassion. God is perfect. So if God is expressing one over the other, it's because what it is right, it is correct, it is accurate, it's what we need, what we deserve. So God, like a parent, has either of those. So Shema Yisrael, we're saying, wake up, you're asleep, you're sleepwalking through life. You think what's important is uh, how big your house is, or the name of your car, or the latest fashion trend, the shopping. You think what's important is keep it up with, wake that soul up, wake that spirit up, connect, and know that Hashem Yudke Vavke, the God of Rachamim, and Elokeinu, the God of Midas Adin, of justice, that Hashem, that God, Echad, He's one. That whatever happens to us that's good or bad, it all comes from Hashem. And here's the insight of the Sons of Rebbe. We cover our eyes. We take our hand and we cover our eyes when we say Shema. And why do we cover our eyes when we say Shema? Because we're looking around the world and we're saying, a beloved friend is missing, and this one has no parnasa, and this one's looking to get married, and this one's desperate for children, and this one's this, and this one's that. And, and Hashem, God is kind, and God is one. You look around the world and you say, where's God? We all have those moments of doubt and uncertainty, and, and you feel abandoned or isolated, alone, and you wonder, what, where's God? Is there really God? What, what's going on here? So the Sons of Rebbe said, that's why we cover our eyes. Because in order to ascribe to that, uh, to affirm that belief, to remind ourselves that that belief, you cover your eyes. And you say, you know what, I'm not going to just live my life based on what I see with my eyes. I'm not going to accept the superficial. I'm going to tap into a deeper faith and know that beyond it all, there is a God. There is a master puppeteer. There is meaning. There's order. There's purpose to the universe. And while I may not understand it right now, hopefully it will all come into clarity for me. And if not, 
but Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, the God of Chesed, the God of Din. It's all Hashem. It all comes from the perfect, omnipotent One who has a master plan for us. And that emuna. So sometimes you have to cover your eyes in order to tap into that emuna. In other words, sometimes to be a believer, you have to not you have to not believe what's right in front of your eyes. You can't believe what's right in front of your eyes. Sometimes if you believe what's right in front of your eyes, you'll never... He's like the rest of the members of BRS. I'm speaking and he's snoring. It's okay. So, the, uh, there's, for those listening, there's a little baby next to me. There's not a person sleeping in. So, uh, for those listening online, thanks for making fun of someone who fell asleep during the show. So, the, uh, sometimes in order, it's an amazing insight of the Sansa Rebbe. Sometimes in order to feel that highest level of Amuna, you have to extract yourself from the reality that you're in. It's not always good to be a, a realist. You know, you have extreme realists. It's not always good to be an extreme realist. If our people throughout our history were extreme realists, what are the odds we would be here today? If the people before us, our ancestors, faced the Crusades and the Inquisition and the Holocaust and the millennia of persecution and oppression, Yom Kippur War, Yom Kippur War the odds being against us, the Six-Day War, it, right, as recently as modern Israel history, if we faced as realists what lay before us, we, we wouldn't be here as a people. We'd be long gone. We have historically, throughout our people's existence, known, we've learned how to take our hand and cover our eyes and say, you know what? I'm not going to look at what's right in front of me. I'm going to remember there's a master plan and put one foot in front of the other and do everything I have to do with the confidence and the knowledge and the certainty that there is a master plan and that there is a reason and that things are going to come together. So hold on one second. So that's what he's saying is this deeper idea is going back to the basics. To know, whether it's the physical world, the spiritual world, it's one. That every detail, and especially the small, that leaf only exists because God wills it to still be connected to the tree. And the wind is blowing right now because God wills the wind to blow that way. And whatever is happening to me is happening because God wills it. We read in the Haggadah, one of the themes of Pesach is that God, it's not through an intermediary, and it's not through an angel, and it's not through an emissary ambassador. God, not with agency, directly is involved in our lives. And that can raise a whole list of questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? Theodicy, Dr. Schatz spoke about it a couple weeks ago. Last week, a couple weeks ago, I don't remember. Why do bad things happen to, to good people? And it raises a legitimate, difficult set of questions. But it also, if you believe in it, raises tremendous confidence and gives incredible strength and support to know that I'm not going through whatever I'm going through in vain. And though I don't know its ending, will I get what I'm dreaming of? Will I be relieved of whatever pain or suffering? Will it have a positive fairy tale outcome? I don't know. But either way, it's comforting and strengthening to know that it's not random and it's not chance. I'm not a statistic or a piece of data that... It's meant to be. It is what is meant to be by the omnipotent, perfect one who orchestrates the whole world the way only he can. And if you embrace that, that ideology and that attitude, as I say, that attitude can raise questions and then you can be distracted by the questions and the questions become the excuse to drop out of the whole program because you say, yeah, a God who could do, I don't believe in a God who could hurt this, that, and the, I don't believe in a God who could cause pain. I don't believe in a God who bad things could happen to good people. Or you could say, I could live my life with strength and confidence and comfort and hope because I know that whatever happens is not random. There is meaning and purpose. And again, 
those who historically in the Jewish people raised the questions and used it as an excuse to exit, they're no longer part of the Jewish story. And those that use the experiences to strengthen and say, we're going to overcome this Inquisition and this Crusades and this Holocaust and the forced conversions and the oppression and the persecution and the, and the exile, that group who became strengthened by knowing it was for a reason are today thriving in the land of Israel and yeshivas and, 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 and seminaries and, and Jewish communities that are thriving, that are giving birth to generations of vibrant, dynamic, spiritual Jews. So how we deal with, with that question or how we deal with that, with that fact so determines so much of our future and the message that we impart to our children. Do our children see us using the question as an exit strategy? Or do our children see us using it with a sense of faith and hope and optimism? There's a crisis, we daven, because we know Hashem is the one who can answer. And we, you know, something was a great disappointment, but Hashem has a reason. We're learning to, to embrace it, that there's a reason, and we accept, and we're not fighting it, we accept it, we're going to try to improve it, we do all of our initiative, we do everything we can in our power to overcome it, but our family see. So our attitude towards this does impact generations to come when they see the attitude we bring. Yes, Jessica. So that's a good question. Does the will to live bring Amuna, or does Amuna bring the will to live? So there's a book I've recommended a thousand times. Um, it's called The Survivor Club. Oh, I I've recommended it a thousand times. Yeah, it's a great book. And, and here I'm going to give a little spoiler alert that the author, who's Jewish, and in the introduction is a self-proclaimed, you know, unaffiliated, non-observant Jew, um, but he explored what makes some more predisposed to survive than others. And he goes through chapters. Those who survive plane crashes, those who survive illness, those who survive the Holocaust, those who survive... Why did some animal attacks? There's a lot of very cute information that comes through the way. For example, you should always wear closed-toed shoes when you fly, he says. Because, you know, if, you, if you're wearing, like, loose sandals, a lot of people like to wear comfortable shoes when they fly, but if you ever had to run from a wreckage, you would be in trouble. So he has all kinds of... Right, where to sit on the plane. Where you're more likely to survive a crash if you're sitting in the front, the middle, the back of the plane. He has all kinds of information. You know, for example, that left-handers have a shorter lifespan than right-handers. Have and I are both lefties. But for interesting reason. Interesting reason. It has nothing to do with our biology or our makeup. He says because the world is designed for right-handers. So there's more accidents using by lefties using right-hand equipment, machinery, those kinds of things, because the world is designed for right-hands. I'll give you one last cute piece of information he has in there. Anyone know where is the best place in the world to have a heart attack? If you're going to have cardiac arrest, where's the best place on earth to have it? So people think the hospital. But the truth is, you could be in a, a hallway of the hospital or the stairwell and no one would notice you for weeks. Casino. Right. Why? He says, they're always watching you. There's cameras everywhere and there's a room of people watching the cameras everywhere and the fastest response place to a heart attack anywhere on earth is. So if you're feeling like you're going to have a heart attack, go to the hard rock. So anyway... Why am, I, why am I sharing this with you? Because he has this incredible... Uh, at the end of the book, in the epilogue, he essentially examines. So what was the answer? What made some more predisposed to survive than others? And well, he has theories. the oldest man in the world is a Holocaust survivor. He right? has, right. 110 years old, right. 112, 112. Yeah. And he has, he has theories about it. But here's the theory he asserts. And he comes back to the fact that he is not uh, uh, an observant Jew, a, faith, a Jew of faith. And he says, 
what he thinks is the most important ingredient to survival is faith. That when people have faith, when people have faith, they find the will to live. Because they believe they can overcome. And when you lack faith and you say, it's all random and chance, there is no God, there is no hope and optimism, there is no Savior, there is no possibility this can turn on a dime, so they give up hope. Faith gives hope. A few years ago, you remember there were um, um, three or four famous football players who were on a boat that capsized. They were yeah. on a fishing boat that capsized. Yes. And a few of them drowned and one survived. He held onto a plank of wood and floated by holding onto it. Hours, days, I don't remember what it was. And when they asked him afterwards, you know, why do you think he survived when his friends did not? He said, I think I'm getting the story right. I already see Shani's Googling it in her head. The, the, uh, the, she's wondering, which football player? So, uh, so, um, so he, he said... Because every time he was about to let go of the board, he pictured his wife and children. And he felt this responsibility to hold on for them. And he had faith in God that God did not want his wife and children to lose him. So he held on, he said, for one more hour. And he kept doing that until he found himself rescued. So anyway, the upshot of this book. So it's interesting the way you pose that question. You know, do, we, do we have the will to live and therefore we find faith? Or is it that we have faith which gives us the strength and the will to live? Faith can give unbelievable strength to people to overcome the greatest odds ever. Collectively and individually. We just have to, and we all have the gift of it. We have the capacity for it. We have the potential. It's in us. We, we, it's in our DNA. We've inherited it from our forefathers who have perfected it because we had no choice. And we're lucky we, we have things to believe it because people who don't, I don't know how they get through right. difficult times. Yeah. It's totally random and they could just be so angry and... and, and you know, it's interesting. He, he should have had a book. He should have had a chapter in the book. The Jewish people really are the survivors' club. We are the survivors' club. No other people have been so targeted, so, so it's such attempted extermination, and and we are the survivors' club. And so, what that means, it's it's unfortunate. It's sad. How do we understand it? Why? All great questions. But really, ultimately, what it means is that we have inherited within our spiritual and even physical DNA. I believe you know. Rabbi Chassi Yehuda's daughter is an expert. She's in the book. She's quoted in the book. And she's an expert in having studied the biology of second generation Holocaust survivors to see, is there, did, did it, do Holocaust survivors' offspring have literally a different physical makeup, makeup as a result of their having survived? It said Holocaust survivors had elevated cortisol right. in, in their... Yeah, it's unbelievable. Which, you know, and I imagine again, this is anecdotal, but so many Holocaust survivors have such longevity in their life, and it's kind of like if you if you were able to survive the Holocaust, you 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 are predisposed to have the capacity, physically, emotionally, spiritually, to to endure, to endure in general. But we are collectively the Survivors Club, and that should be. That should be inspiring. That should give us hope to know that what we're going through, our ancestors have gone through before, and they found the will and the faith to put a foot in front of the other, and we can too. And please God, hopefully our story has a happy ending, and please God, you know, we celebrate what we're yearning for and looking for and the redemption that we desperately need individually and collectively, but never give up hope. Never think that we don't have it. Never think that we don't have it. The Torah gives it to us. And, you know, whether you were brought up religious, not religious, Jewish, or came to be Jewish, we all have that capacity, that strength. We are given that gift to tap into through Torah, through Emuna, through faith. And that's why, that's why we study it. Tvisa Zu, did someone else have a comment? Tvisa Zu, second paragraph, in the bottom half of page five. Now this idea is not something that you can 
You know, it's not, not so simple. And that's why Amuna takes, it's profound, it takes some thoughtfulness and it takes insight. This is a great novel contribution of our great Torah. If you look superficially at the world, you say to yourself, you know, whoever's the shlamazel, an underachiever, has no work ethic, doesn't apply themselves, doesn't know how to make money, will be poor. And you say the smart one, the intelligent, brilliant one, who knows how to analyze and understand and uh, earn money and how to invest it, how to live life, that that person will result in being rich. Ha'ishtadus, nechasim means property, means material goods, that you will be a bal nechasim, you will have a lot. You know, Chazal note, mar ben nechasim, mar da'aga. The more you have, the more worry you have. You know, when you rented a small place, you had little worries. And then you own a big house, and then, you know, the roof and the plumbing and the air conditioner went and the thing, that's the... It's kind of be careful what you wish for because the right. more you have, the more it could go wrong and get fixed and go stress and gets, you know. So nechassim means uh, material possessions. So at, at first glance, in a superficial look, you look around the world and you say, basically, you know, the overachiever, smart, intellectual, top of the class, they're always rich. The underachiever, lazy, good-for-nothing bum, they're always poor. Um, that there's a direct, we're tempted to think, that there's a direct correlation between effort and results. But in reality, while that's the way superficially we see it, if you actually take a look and analyze it, you'll see that that's all false. It's not true. The results don't always correlate with the effort. The only thing that correlates is what did God allow the individual to achieve? We all know people who are like the bottom of our class, lazy, good for nothing, and they came across the idea, they married into the right family, their family, their parent had the right, whatever. They end up being in a position in life that they're, it's unbelievable. And you have other people who were at the top of the class, they gave the valedictory speech, they were, you know, chosen, voted to be, whatever, and they like, they're struggling to succeed. They're struggling to... To, to get some traction in life. It doesn't correlate. Now, we have to do, this is something my brother-in-law taught me. He's a lawyer in Israel. It was a great insight he shared with me. We, we have an obligation to do Hishtabas. We have to do our effort. We're going to read about that on the seventh day of Pesach. The Jewish people are trapped between the sea in front of them, the Egyptians behind them, and they start to daven, and God tells to Moshe, what, what the heck are they doing? Close your mouth, close your tehillim, start walking. Get into the sea. It's a pasuk. It's a pasuk in Bashalach, and we're going to read it on seventh day of Pesach. And we talked about this. You look, you say, what? What do you mean? They're going to look at Moshe and say, close our tehillim. It's exactly what we were taught. Right? Every time there's a crisis, open your tehillim. What do you mean, close our tehillim? So what's the answer? Is that there are moments to say tehillim, and there are moments to take action. And we have to know when to do what. The two things complement one another. You can't not take action and just sit in your couch and say to him and think that God's going to perform miracles. We don't believe in relying on miracles. 
We have to do our effort. We have to do our part. And then the Tehillim correlate with our effort that God hopefully responds and rewards the effort we've made. Now, you can't just do effort. If all you do is effort, then in the end of the day, you think that you're the one in control. So you have to combine effort with faith. You have to combine effort with prayer. And the two complement. In other words, I, I always like to express it, this prayer with words and this prayer with action. We show faith to God with the words we use. Do we say to Him? Do we turn to Him? Do we talk to Him from the bottom of our hearts? And then we also show our faith and prayer with action. We say, God, I understand I have to do my part. I have to meet halfway. Right? This is the theme of Pesach, which I don't want to get too lost on this right now, but that's exactly the blood of Brismila and the blood of the Korban Pesach in Tanakh, Sefer Yechezkel, are connected. Right? And what's the connection between Brismila and Pesach? Both of them, Rabbi Akiva met the Roman general Turnus Rufus, and the Roman general said to him, Turnus Rufus, if God wants Jewish boys circumcised, why didn't he create them that way? If foreskin is such a devil, a villain, why did he create it? So Rabbi Akiva, right, he thought he had a great question. So Rabbi Akiva turned to him and said that uh, he gave him some wheat and he gave him a piece of bread. So if God wanted bread, why didn't he make it grow from the ground? And the answer is God wants us to be his partner in creation, his partner in redemption. And so he leaves he leaves to invites us, allows us to be his partner. So that's true with Brismila and the symbolism there, which we're not going to get into now. And it's true with Pesach. God didn't know which were the Jewish homes in Egypt. They had to slaughter the God of the Egyptians, put the blood on the doorpost, so that God could identify the Jewish home. It wasn't enough to see the Honda Odyssey in the driveway. He had to put the, <laughs> had to put the, the blood on the doorpost. So why, why did God, God needed us to do it? And the answer is, yeah, God said, you know, you can't sit in your couch, watch TV, and think I'm going to come redeem you from Egypt and skip over your house. What do you, you need to show some courage. Take that God of the Egyptians, tie it against the doorpost for four days, and then slaughter it. And when you smear the blood on your doorway and basically show the Egyptians who's God, then I'll do my part, says God. But don't think you're going to sit back. You do your part, I'll do my part. We have to do our effort. And that's why, why do we, we when Elio Navi we, sing, we say Shvoch HaMascha and, and we say, uh, we sing, um, no, what do we sing? Elio Anavi. So why do we open the door for him? Elio Anavi can't come down the chimney? Elio Anavi can't crawl, crawl through the, the window? We have to open the door? So I once heard Rabbi Riskin say that, uh, yeah, if you want redemption, Elio Anavi is the harbinger of redemption, then you've got to get up off your tuchus and you've got to do something. You think you're going to sit at the table drinking your wine, eating your matzah, and Elio Anavi is going to come passively redeem you? You want redemption, you've got to get up and you've got to do something too. So this is a theme of the Jewish people, that God will do His part, but He needs to see us do ours. Because our doing our part is an act of faith. God, I know I have to do my part. So where's the insight of my brother-in-law? It's a great insight into Emunah. We tend to mistakenly feel that the Hishtadlis, that the initiative that we take, will always correlate with the results that we have. So basically, I work hard at work, then I'm going to do better, I'm going to earn more money. I do X, then Y will happen. He said, you know, we do the effort because that's the prerequisite to get the results. But it doesn't always correlate. What does he mean? So he's a lawyer in Israel, and he has his own firm, and he has to be the rainmaker. He's got to bring in, the own, he's got to bring in his own business. So he's constantly, and he's got a wonderful firm, he's doing great. Um, good news for my sister and nieces and nephews. So, but he's got to bring in the business. So he's got to constantly email and, and phone calls and reach out. He comes to the States and he sets up meetings and networks. He does his status. And he has told me on numerous occasions. He says, Ephraim, you, you won't believe that 
every time I do the effort, and he, he's not naturally the extrovert who loves people who wants to be out there, but he's got to do it. So he brings himself to do it, and he says, every time I bring myself to do it, afterwards I get an influx of business, and it has nothing to do with the meetings and the phone calls and the emails. He comes back from a trip from New York, and it's not that the people he met with now want business from him. It's that you know an old friend reached out or saw him online, or an old client remembered and referred him to another client. And he says, when he does his shtablis, when he does his effort, he gets results, but it rarely correlates that the effort with the result. And he mamish feels the Yad Hashem. Hashem is waiting. No, do your part, and I'm, I'm ready. I've got a storehouse of clients ready to drop on you. But I can't do it till you do your part. You cannot sit back. You can't sit back in your office with the Gemara open thinking like, you know, the phone's going to ring. You've got to do your effort. And then God says, I've got a client Rolodex that I'm ready to send your way. And it's not going to necessarily correlate. Sometimes it will correlate. Sometimes it won't correlate. But what it relies on is our doing, is our, doing our effort and finding that balance between effort and faith. So that's what he says here is that, you know, you tend to think that you know, the number one guy in the class is going to be rich, and the last person in the class is going to be poor, but that's not necessarily the case. Hakol misnahel, everything is run, right? Hashem is the minahel. Ah, baraka yidei echad. Ein ba'olam davar melvad borei olam. Hu ha'kovea kon dekuda v'nekuda b'mahalei chachayim v'vitoch ha'metzis. V'hishtadlas kula, eina ela begeder efes gamur. The hishtadlas we do, never think that your success is the result of the efforts that you took because there were a gazillion other people who took the exact same efforts at you and didn't have that success. You're the only entrepreneur. You're the only one who had that chap. You're the only one who spent long hours in the office. You're the only one who sent out lots of emails. You think the only one? So why is it that your effort resulted in success and the person next to you who did the exact same efforts did not? It's the senior partner. We have a partner in everything we do and we are the junior partner. And when you deny, you know, when there's a conflict between partners and one partner starts saying the other guy didn't do anything and he's out, that's when you have a breakdown. Don't knock God out. Be grateful. Be humble and be grateful and recognize He's the senior partner. Do your work, show up, do your part. Zoe Bechinas Mochen de Godless. Haistaklas al Olaba Mamachal Adam Gadol. It means, Mochen de Godless means an outlook, a perspective, an ideology of seeing the world as an Adam Gadol. Achain Tfisa Nelazu, local Echad Mesuga Litvos Lahavin. To achieve that level where everything in life, everything in the world is the Ribonashal, is Hashem. Every leaf, every blade of grass, every music, every scene, every moment, every class. You see, Hashem, isn't it amazing? We all know people like that. They make us a little bit nauseous. But on the same time, they make us a little bit envious. You know, of the, of, to a little bit, you're like, are they real? Are they in fantasy land? Are they real? And the other piece of us is like, I wish I were in their fantasy land. That is such a happy place. That is such a strong place. I wish I was with them. But we can be them. We all have that capacity to say, isn't that amazing? Isn't Hashem amazing? Isn't Hashem great? Let's talk to Hashem. Let's lean on Hashem. Let's be grateful to Hashem. To be that, that person, we have that capacity, which is an Adam Gadol. Let's just get to the uh, next bowl. It's like a young child waiting for his mother at home in the afternoon. When the mother comes home, she'll make lunch. And the mother is delayed. She's not guilty. It's not her fault. There was traffic on her way home. So she's 45 minutes late. So that young child, the mother's going to say, look, I didn't delay your lunch. It's not my fault I'm late. Hashem wanted you to have the lunch late. 
The five-year-old's like, what? what? Hashem, what? Hashem wants me to have lunch late? Like, mommy, where were you? I'm starving. There's no lunch. Mommy, where were you? So that's all the child understands. Mocho the, the, the development of the child is not yet at the point that the child can say, oh yeah, it wasn't your fault, mom. You know, circumstances, and that was orchestrated by the omnipotent, infinite one. The male's here. Right, the bottom line is, hey, I'm hungry and you're not here. The child only knows one thing. Yesterday his mother fed him lunch on time when he was hungry. And today there's no mommy and he's hungry. So the child, who only lives in a developmentally shallow stage, says, well, all I understand is mommy's the one who feeds me. When she's here, I eat. When she's not, I don't. And, and, and I blame her. I'm grateful to her when I eat and I'm angry at her when she's not here. So that's the child. So many of us are, are adult children, right? We're looking and we're saying, not that Hashem is the one orchestrating these things, we're blaming the mommy in each of the circumstances, you know? Instead of realizing Hashem orchestrated this, this traffic, Hashem orchestrated this experience, Hashem orchestrated this success, Hashem orchestrated this disappointment. There's meaning, there's purpose. I'm meant to go through this. I'm somehow meant to grow from this. I'm meant to be stronger. I'm meant to experience this. This is what's best for me. It doesn't mean I have to be happy about it. It doesn't mean I have to be complacent about it. Hashem wants us to protest. I believe sometimes that's why things happen. And we have incredible, we've spent time on this. Avram with Sodom, Moshe Rabbeinu himself. We have our greatest leaders, whether it's Avram who says to God, how could you do this to Sodom? Or Moshe says to God, let me see your face. Why do bad things happen to good people? We come from a um, record of challenging God. He wants us to protest. When we've had a crisis in the community and we gather for Tehillim, I always say the same thing. We have gathered to protest what Hashem is doing. That's not a denial of Hashem. That's the greatest affirmation of Hashem. You only protest somebody who you think is in power, who's in control. You don't protest the custodian in the White House you protest the president in the White House, right? You only protest the person who you hold accountable for the reality. So it's a great statement of faith to protest Hashem. Avram did it. Moshe did it. Our most faithful people did it. And we can do it. Hashem, I'm protesting this decision. It's not good. I want a job. I want a spouse. I want children. I want happiness. I want my friend to come home. I'm protesting. It's not... I don't accept it. Hashem, I'm protesting it. We are meant to protest. But ultimately, we're meant to realize that it comes from Hashem. Not just chance and random. It's not the equivalent of the mommy in the story and the metaphor, but that there is a higher being. That Hashem Elokeinu, whether it's that which is good for us or that which we perceive as painful, it's all Hashem Echad. And we have to cover our eyes and put our hand over our face to be able to find the strength to say it because we have to divorce ourselves from reality in order to tap into that faith. Then so be it. But that's what it takes to, to sustain ourselves and to continue. So the difference between a katan and a gadol being the child who just sees the mommy and doesn't see anything more, and being the gadol who realizes that it wasn't mommy's fault, she was stuck in traffic, there's a greater plan, is our perspective on the world. Yeah, it's Rachel? It's so good for our midos also, that like for our patients and for, you know, it's a, right. you, can't control, you know, can't control it, there's traffic here, you know, it just makes you calmer. It's good for the kids to see that attitude. You know, Absolutely. When you don't have to blame, you don't get angry right away. It, it's, you know, I, I've, over the years, I've given Shira Manamuna, and they're not, when I'm giving Shira Manamuna, I'm, like all of us, you know, much more aware of it. And, and it's amazing. It, it is. When you're stuck in that traffic and your blood pressure is starting to rise, and the sweat glands are starting to work, and you're starting to get frustrated, and then you stop and you say to yourself, I can't change this. 
It was meant to be for whatever reason. And what's next? What's next? All of a sudden, it's like taking a Percocet. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it is. It's the same feeling. You ever take a Percocet? Anyone wants, you know, you take a Percocet. All of a sudden, I, I have found, and thank God I only took it for a few days, but the Percocet didn't relieve the pain in my foot. But, but right, but who right. cares? Care. It just what happens is you take Percocet, and 20 minutes later, you know you're, you're a little loopy. You feel this like warm rush come over you. This like calm, this tingling. That's I don't know. Everyone has different reactions. It's like it's great, and all of a sudden, whatever your foot was hurting you doesn't really matter anymore. So Amuna is like a Percocet for life. Like so, you're starting to feel pain. Take an Amuna pill, and realize this calm come over you. So you know what? This is what's meant to be. I'm in traffic. I can't change it. It is what it is. What do I need to do next? And then that's it. And then that's it. Hold on. Rachel wants to say something. Yeah, just my conclusion is that once you've accepted and once you know that it's all in Hashem's hands and you, you're at that point, so then you, then you say, but it's okay to protest. So that's my, that's my, you know, it's almost like when things happen, then you kind of lose your emotions. And you're, but like you're saying, but then you're supposed to protest. So, that's the conclusion. So I'll, I'll tell you what the... Uh, the it's a great question. But think about it in the realm of illness, right? Somebody's ill. We don't say, like Scientologists, well, that's what God wants. Don't go to a doctor and, and don't change the will of God by getting better. We say get better. Right. Think about davening. Davening is, is protest. I'm protesting. Somebody's sick. I'm protesting. Please, God, make him better. I'm struggling with Parnassa. I'm protesting. God, make it better. Davening is... Yeah, you know what it's like in, in, in the middle of an election? We can appreciate this. It's an amazing thing, democracy. You fight and fight and fight for your candidate. You call the other candidate every name in the book, and hopefully you don't. You, you hang up signs, you do bumper stickers, you do everything in the world to protest the other person and to advocate for your person. But when the election's over, if the other person won, they're your president. And you follow their rules and their laws. And that's democracy. You know, in the Middle East, you just kill the person. <laughs> you know, you're, you, you just stuff your ballot box. You kill the other person because you didn't want them to be president. They won. So that's like, you know, we protest, protest, protest. And when, God, when the election's over, when God has determined this is it, that's when we go towards acceptance. And I think that's, I think that's how it goes. Okay, if anyone... Yes? A great story is when Dominic uh, when Shane was pregnant with his first child, that child got very sick, and he was crying and ripping queer and on the floor and, and praying to try to change God's mind. Yep. But then when he finally passed away, he Except got up and walked away and they couldn't understand. Right, exactly. That's exactly that movement from right. protest to, so, so to acceptance. Think, uh, Right. It's like what we think we see is how it, but it's not how it's it exactly it. That's exactly it. But it, and that also correlates with the with the hishtadlis. What was Mordechai saying to Esther? He was saying, "Look, God's going to God's got a plan here, but someone's got to do hishtadlis. So either you, you know, like someone's got to do the hishtadlis. 
it's not that the Hishtablis is going to result in the salvation. God's going to bring salvation. But we've got to do the Hishtablis because that's what we do. We're fasting and davening for three days and we've got to do effort. So Esther, you're lucky enough that you're in position that you get to do the effort. But somebody's got to do it because without the effort, God can't release the salvation. So it's exactly the same theme. If there's anyone who's not on the email, I send a weekly email out to remind people about the class. If anyone's not on the weekly email that wants to be, please um, write your email down somewhere. No, we'll meet next week. Yeah. People good still next Wednesday morning? Mm-hmm. We'll meet next week. Mm-hmm. And then Cholomoyd Pesach, we'll take a break. My house is going to be good. And then, uh, and then we'll resume after. So we are on for next week. But if I don't have your email list, email, uh, give me your email so that I can put you on the list.